Last week, in Ecclesiastes, uh, the preacher paused his lament of the world around him and told us something thoroughly true, is that when we approach God, we should not approach God flippantly or with an attitude of presumption, but we should approach God with fear and awe and in reverence. And I think that is... That is something that our church embraces, um, and in the the new covenant provision of Christ, we, we can approach Him with joy. So we can we can worship God because He is a consuming fire with reverence and all. But we should also approach God with joy and gladness. And I think, by God's grace, we are, we are doing that. And all Christians should be able to approach God with joy and reverence. But now, the preacher uh, goes on to continue to lament life. And uh, we were just talking before, um, Ecclesiastes is about raw realities of life. He's not pulling any punches. He laments uh, the seeming vanity and emptiness of the pursuits of many men and death. And here he's going to lament the fact that people are so dissatisfied with their life. Why is that? Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth will be with his income. This is also vanity. When, good, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and in anger. Behold, I have seen what is good and fitting. It is to eat and to drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. This is a gift from God. What is, if I could start this with a question, what is a successful life? What is your view of a successful life? And I wonder if that's informed by the world's view of what a successful life is. I heard a parable one time um, 
and it involved two men down in South America in the early 1900s who were fishing in a makeshift um, boat with makeshift fishing poles. And their job was just to sell fish in the market. And they were kind of hand to mouth. They made what they needed. And they had a very small bucket of fish next to them. They were going to take in the market when the evening came to provide for their families. Um, but they would, they would casually and peacefully fish. And they kind of have their straw hats pulled down over their eyes sometimes. And they have this small bucket of fish. And along comes one man who chastens them and says, men, what are you doing? This is not how to, to get great wealth. You should have, rather than two fishing poles, you should have 10. And five outside this, this side of the boat and five on this side of the boat. And you could catch a whole bunch of fish that way. And the two men asked, well, why would, why would we want to do that? And the man retorted and said, well, this is so you could grow your business. And then you could have men work for you. And the two men asked, well, why would we want to do that? And so the man retorted again, well, so you could relax and then you could enjoy what, you're, what you do. And the two men looked at him and said, well, what do you think we're doing right now? I think that parable perfectly summarizes what the preacher is saying. Because it reframes success from the power to attain to the power to enjoy. And I think that is precisely worldliness versus godliness when it comes to the stuff of earth. Worldliness frames success as the power to attain greater and more. Godliness is simpler. It's the power to enjoy and receive what God has blessed you with in this life. Now, throughout history, the world has cast this vision of success. And it, it looks like attaining higher positions accruing more possessions, accumulating greater wealth, and leveraging it for more and more wealth. Well, the preacher knows that that's a fool's game, and the vision of the successful life that the world offers is actually a mirage, and it does not actually lead to enjoyment in life, but actually, very often, it leads to vexation. So he critiques this vision. Um, Two parts of the sermon today. Number one, we're going to look at the preacher's critique of the good life's vision, of the worldly vision of the good life. And then we'll just analyze his reframing of the good life as the power to enjoy what God has given. So let's look at his critique of the world's vision of success, starting in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, he says. So here's the thing. The rich man has many things. He has cars. He has houses. He has servants. He has maids. He has wine. He has, he has anything that his heart could, could offer or desire, it seems. And yet there are many things that the, wealth, the wealthy man very often does not have. Verse 10 
Very often, the wealthy man never has enough of what he has. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth will be satisfied with his income. This is also vanity. So the kind of person who loves wealth will never be satisfied with wealth, he's saying. So there are people, people will spend a, bunk of, a bulk of their energy on, on adding to their collection, increasing their options, and, and hoarding their possessions. And those are the kind of people that are never satisfied with what they actually have. So there's an insatiability to the human heart. And that insatiability is very common in those who desire to be rich or desire wealth. <clears throat> that hunger for wealth, Koheleth is saying, the preacher is saying, is almost like a fire. The more you feed it, the more it will burn and the hungrier it will get. Second, the rich man not only never has enough, but the rich man can never be sure he has true friends. Verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Interesting that the wealthy men very often have an entourage with them. And the wealthy man can never be sure what the motivation for his entourage is. Why are they around him? Why do they flock to him? Is it true friendship? Is it appreciation for him? Or is it what he might be able to give them? So he can never be sure he has true friends. Yes, wealth will increase. But when goods increase, they increase who eat them as well. Thirdly, the rich man can never have actual peace of mind. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So the preacher is saying that riches bloat the conscience with more worries. On a small scale, I, I think you can see this. It, you could become paranoid. Um, I, I saw a car, now I'm very ignorant about cars, I saw a car last week and I was driving, I was like, well, look at that car, an idiot, it has like a, it has like a crown on the front. Now, I didn't know that that's actually a Maserati, I don't think I've ever seen a Maserati before. But it was a, an incredible piece of craftsmanship, beautiful, red, with this crown on it. I can assure you when that man parks his car, he is very paranoid about where he parks it, and I'm sure he rushes back to see what condition it's in. The freedom of owning a Honda Civic that the sun has completely destroyed and your kids have painted on, like mine, with white paint that we use to paint the living room with, is I could park that thing in the city of Newburgh, I could leave the windows open, I could leave the keys in it, and it would probably not be touched. I have great peace of mind when I drive my car that the wealthy man doesn't have. So on a small scale, you could just see how the, the accumulation of more or better or greater actually just leads to more worries. As we know, as the great rapper of the 90s said, more money. 
equivalates to more problems. Now, on a larger scale, I heard a story about a, um, a family who was very wealthy. <clears throat> and their wealth had, had gotten them multiple businesses, family businesses, uh, multi-million dollar businesses that they were running. And the family became extremely stressed out um, about who would have what position, who would run what, who would get what inheritance. And it caused great stress and fighting in the family. All the financial, all the financial decisions just bloated the family with worries and worries. And, um, and I was told that this family had a maid who was their maid for many years. And she came up to one of the sons after a, a huge family blowout. And she said to one of the sons, you know, uh, all I have to worry about is my job and taking care of my family. But you, I, I can't imagine all the stress that's on you. Now she meant that to be sympathetic. But it actually illustrates the point that the preacher is making, that wealth often leads to vexation and, and great stress and worry and anxiety in life. The rich man can never have enough, the preacher says. The rich man is not sure who his friends are, and the rich man, man very often lacks peace of mind. So in all his getting, all his getting is actually stealing life from his very soul. I think, I was thinking this morning as I was praying, wealth, I believe, is like manna. Um, God provided manna to Israel. You remember the story in Exodus? God provided manna to Israel, but if they collected more than they needed, what would happen? It would rot and worms would grow in it. Exodus 16.20 Some took part and left it till the morning and it bred worms and it stank and Moses was angry with them. So it seems that wealth could work the same way. Pause for a moment. You have to understand that Ecclesiastes is aiming at a certain person. He's aiming at the man who is primed for success. Or the woman who is primed for success. He's aiming at the go-getter. The self-starter. The motivated person. That's what he's talking about. He's talking to more a, a higher, higher level person, you might say. He is certainly... And scripture certainly doesn't say there's anything wrong with saving for retirement. That's wisdom. Saving an inheritance for your children. That's wisdom. Working hard. That's godly. Koheleth is aiming at a certain kind of person. He's aiming at the person who is primed for success. He's the hustler. So he's aiming at the hustler. And he is preaching to them and telling them that it is a striving after wind, ultimately. So in what we say here in Ecclesiastes, 
It gives no excuse for lack of work or laziness. It gives no excuse for a failure to actually apply yourself. He is aiming at the man who sees success and runs for it. And that's some of you there today. And, I, and some of you are very successful and praise God for that. That's a beautiful thing. But let the scripture pierce your heart and divide it and analyze what your motivations are. So with that said, the rich person is, is just entrenched with all kinds of vexation because of his riches. Next, the preacher talks about the instability of riches. Verse 13, he gives this little parable. He says, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And as he came from his mother's womb, shall he, so shall he go again. Naked he came, he shall take nothing for all his toil. That's a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he'll go. What does he gain? Toils after wind. Moreover, all of his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and in anger. This parable seems to be aimed at the consequences of greed. So, just to summarize, he says, rather than wisely managing his wealth and through the desire for more and more money, um, this man seemed to have placed the entirety of his riches on a bad venture, or maybe a, a gamble or a bet, in which he lost it all, and now he has no inheritance for his children. He'll die without anything to show for all his work, and his selfishness and his greed is actually left into a life of vexation and regret, and he eats in darkness. So greed for wealth, he's saying, is ironically the reason he lost the wealth in the first place. And now he eats in darkness and vexation. The gambling industry in this country, and, and any country, preys off greed. Um, the Wall Street Journal had an article that said that gamblers lost $60 billion in 2022. Across the U.S., U.S. gamblers, it says, lost $34.2 billion on slot machines last year, up from 5% in 2021. And players lost $10 billion on game table games, such as blackjack and roulette, up nearly 14% from the last year. Billions of dollars are being lost by people because of carelessness or greed. One, one other um, article said, this is from Wealth Hub, it says, while the gambling industry made a record 60 billion in revenue last year, US consumers experience over 100 billion per year in total gambling losses annually. Individually, a male gambling addict accumulates an average debt of 55 to $90,000. Most cannot afford to pay back what they owe, and as a result, gambling addicts develop a high tendency to amass even more debt 
suffer from other health issues, lose their jobs, strain their relationships, or even commit crime. That, I think, is the spirit of verse 17. All his days, he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness, and in anger, because he lost his wealth on a bad venture. All of those all of those examples the preacher gives show that are they come from a worldly vision of success. A desire for more, to accumulate, to attain. And he says this is all vanity, and he has seen how this has gone, typically, in his life. Um, I think the application here is something we've, we've talked about multiple times in our sermon series through Ecclesiastes, is that riches will not lead to ultimate satisfaction or fulfillment. It's the false, false path of fulfillment. Eric Clapton, who's a famous musician, says, I was a millionaire. I had beautiful women in my life. I had cars, houses. And on a daily basis, I wanted to commit suicide. That's an amazing statement. To have everything you could possibly want. This is a man who has made it to where many people are striving. Right? And he says on a daily basis, he wanted to commit suicide. So remember the overall strategy of Ecclesiastes. It is to save you from a life of futility and striving after wind. Choose not to hustle your way into vexation and anxiety in life. Constantly leveraging what you have for more and more. It'll just be more worries, more vexation, and you may even eat in darkness because of bad ventures. Choose rather a simpler life of fearing God and keeping his commandments. And that's what we get to now. So that's his critique of the world's vision for success. Here's what he says about enjoyment. Reframing success around enjoyment, he says. Much better than the power to attain is the power to enjoy. Verse 18. I have seen what is good and fitting. It is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Verse 19 is key. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth, possessions, and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. This is a gift from God. So the preacher is talking about a way of going through life with ease and gratitude. Trusting God to supply your needs. Asking him for the power to enjoy and appreciate what he's actually given you. I've said before, contentment is seeing what's around you and thanking God for it. 
Discontentment comes what, from seeing what you do not have, looking at what you do not have, and being anxiously, a bit anxiously trying to attain it. What things has God provided us to enjoy? Verse 19, he says, food and drink. I was so thankful yesterday, I went to the Americana Diner in Middletown and had breakfast with my family for my daughter's birthday before the family came over to celebrate her. It was a beautiful time. The food was good. We enjoyed each other's company. And I thank God for giving us this family. Food and drink, and the people that you eat it with. Be thankful for that. Wealth. We all have houses. None of us are homeless. I think we all have cars. We all have been given a certain measure of wealth that we can be extremely thankful for. Possessions. And then he says, the power to enjoy also his toil. Maybe you say, you know, maybe I don't, I don't enjoy my work. Well, maybe, maybe find new work that you do enjoy, <laughs> right? But you say, well, but I have, a, I have a, you know, house and cars. Maybe downsize the house and sell the cars. Because God has given you life to enjoy, not to just work for some kind of debt that you've accrued to yourself because it fits within the American vision of how we should live. You know, sometimes we don't enjoy a bite of food is because we've bit off more than we can chew. And we're trying to gnaw it. My, my daughter does that sometimes. We're eating steak. She'll bite off half the cow. We're chewing it like that. We say, at least cut that in half and chew it. I think it's the same thing for life. Sometimes we bite off more than we can chew. It takes away from enjoyment and pleasure and ease in life. And all you're doing in life is trying to chew what you swallowed, which is way too much. See and approach life as a gift. The power to enjoy, I think, is given to those who have a sense of gratitude and strive to live simply in life. Not lazily. And there's nothing wrong with being wise with your money and growing a bank account. But there is a motivation that is rottenness. And if that motivation is permitted to live in you, could lead to vexation. Kohala says the main problem the main problem for many a rich and wealthy man is the inability to enjoy life. And that's a great evil. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. This is an evil I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on man, to whom God has given wealth, possessions, honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a great evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's goods, and he has no burial, 
I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. So the evil that the preacher sees is there are people who have all that life could offer and yet they do not have the power to enjoy it. That's an amazing thing. So how, how do we get the power to enjoy it? I think the key verse to answer that question is chapter 6, verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering appetite. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. That's exactly the perfect picture of contentment. Better is the sight of the eyes, what is before you, than the wandering appetite. He is talking about the appetite that wanders for more, that looks for more. And that's the kind of motive, that's the kind of seed of bitterness that springs up and leads to a man cheating on his wife, someone going to the casino and wasting their retirement, the wandering appetite is very dangerous. Better is the sight of the eyes, the preacher says. There's an old Puritan book called The uh, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Has anyone ever read that? The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Ryan? Someone else? There's, there's a hand up there. I don't see who that is. Who is that? Oh, you were? Okay. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs. I like his definition of contentment. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's it. Wouldn't that be a good frame of mind if you could go through life like that? The frame of mind that submits to the lot that you've been given in life, delights in God's fatherly and wise providence in your life, and in whatever condition, is thankful and has a sense of gratitude. You know, in Philippians 4, that verse that is probably most taken out of context, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Before he says that, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know how to suffer and hunger and want, and I know how to abound. Do you know how to be brought low? Do you know how to have less? Or do you only know how to abound when you chase that? I think the world, with its commercials and its, its constant flickering of what it offers in life, not only teaches us, but tempts us to a life that only knows how to abound. 
and not to a life that knows how to be brought low. The key to enjoying life, I believe, and I think Kohelis is, is saying, is not by ex- squeezing life for every ounce of pleasure, pleasure you could possibly wring from it. It's not to amass all the manna that you see in the wilderness. It is rather to receive life as God's gracious gift to us and the good things in it that God has given you as those things that you can enjoy and be thankful for. If you don't, notice he says, it is the power to enjoy that is the gift of God. If you don't have pleasure in the life that is given you, you might need to change some circumstances and you do need to ask God for the ability to do all things through him who strengthens you. So, there are practical, economic, emotional pitfalls of a life storing up earthly treasure, right? But far more and this is really where my heart is, far more serious than the the practical dangers of a life of storing up wealth are the spiritual dangers of a life of amassing wealth and the pursuit and that hustle culture. The spiritual dangers and the hunger for more has left many a Christian forgetting God and forsaking him. 1 Timothy 6.10 Paul says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. The love for attaining more and more has caused people to wander away from the faith. My friend, Joe Ballone, who's now a preacher down in South Carolina, talked about a father and a daughter who came to America recently, within the past 20 years. I think, actually, they came from Iran, if I remember the story right. And the father was a Christian in a Muslim-controlled nation. And he was actually imprisoned for his faith for a time and beaten. When he came to America, he came with a strong Christian faith. One that actually suffered for Jesus Christ in, in jail. I mean, he was doing it. Then when he came to America, he got the degree. He, I don't know what the business was, I forget, but he started, started a successful business, and as time went on, he left the church and lost his faith. And the daughter, reflecting on this, who was still a Christian, said, you know, the one thing that the Muslims couldn't do, riches did to my father. The Muslims couldn't make him lose his faith. But wealth, wealth did the trick. And he pierced himself with many pangs. 
Jesus Christ also talks a lot about wealth and riches. In the parable of the sower, which is what I've been thinking about this week, Jesus says, and then there are those sown among the thorns. And they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. I wonder in what ways you might be allowing to let the cares of the world choke out the word and your hearts and prove unfruitful. I wonder how that happens with me. I think one way I see this is just kids' sports. I've seen people say, you know what, my, my son's playing baseball, he's playing football. It's on Sundays, so we're just going to miss church for the season. That's a great example, I think, of allowing the cares of the world to choke out the word and one's commitment to the word. It could be programs, it could be hobbies. Instead of fellowshipping with the saints, Midweek or on the, in the main Sunday worship. Perhaps you're, you're hunting, we're fishing, all things I do and all things I love. But even those good gifts from God could choke out the word. So, in conclusion, the amassing of great wealth has stolen life from people. The desire for more and more the gluttonous heart bloats itself with more worries and anxiety so it can't enjoy life and it does not attain to the eternal life. Rather, it pierces itself with many pangs. So, change our vision of what a successful life looks like from one that's framed around attaining and amassing to one that's framed around the power to enjoy what God has given to you. And ask God for that power. Now, I must end with this parable. And I know you've heard me say this before, many times. But I need to end with this parable because it, it actually gets to the point. The way God works, the way Christ works, is not by taking things away from us. He doesn't want to take your wealth away. He doesn't want to take enjoyment from life away. The, re the, the way Christ works is not by taking everything away from us, but by giving us something much greater than what we already have. Not by taking away, but by giving us something greater. The parable of the hidden treasure, Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. That's the exchange. The exchange, rather, all that he had, through all the riches he had, all the wealth he had, he sold it in order to buy the field. 
This is what the kingdom of God is like. Or the person who understands it, Jesus is saying, is like this man. I think is a perfect example of God not taking away your riches, but offering you far greater riches. Why gain the whole world and lose your soul? Let this be a serious reminder, an opportunity to examine your heart today. Where our motivations are, where our priorities are, let not the cares of the world choke out the words in our hearts. And by God's grace, we'll enjoy the great gifts he's given us. One of the things he's given us is each other in this church. And that's the beauty of membership in this church, because we covenant with one another to be like the community in Acts 2, who were worshiping God with glad and generous hearts, sharing our possessions as anyone had need. I can, I can, you can almost take it to the bank that if you needed something in this church, the members of this church would be there for you. Financially, materially, you need help. If you truly needed something, if you were in a time of need, the members of this church would be here for you. I think so. We have a counterculture community as willing to sacrifice for the people, just as God has called the saints. I could go on. Let me, let me finish with that. Reframe success, brothers and sisters, from attaining to enjoying God's gracious gifts. Chiefly, the gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ, who though we were sinners and paid in eternal debt, Jesus Christ came down, died the death we should have died, rose again as our King and our Lord, and has made a way to eternity through faith in Him. If anyone has questions about that or is unsure about the gospel message, the good news about Jesus, I would love to talk to you afterwards. I'm sure a member would love to talk to you afterwards. Um, this is the gospel we preach. Jesus Christ. And so in all these sermons on wisdom and Ecclesiastes, let Never lose the bigger picture that Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure and the one we are to seek. And he's given us life to enjoy while we have it on earth. Let's close.